0: Thank you, Drew. Drew is one of our elders here at GCF, and Drew, we're thankful for your labor among us. If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 8, as we continue in our series here in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 8, Matthew, Mark. Mark chapter 8, I'll read just a short passage, verses 27 through 30 this morning. Beginning next Sunday, we begin our Uh, Advent Preaching Series. What that really means is two practical things. Number one, it means that including Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, we'll have five opportunities, five Christmas related sermons, five opportunities to gather together to celebrate specifically the birth of Christ. So if you like Christmas, this is the church to be in. So we're excited about that. I'm excited about that. On that note, uh, Christmas Eve service will be here at 4 p.m., Christmas Day, that is a Sunday, will be right here at 10 a.m., and so uh, you can put that on your calendars. Second thing that our our Advent series means is that uh, you will have a bit of a rotating cast of preachers here, as we have done in previous years. You'll get the opportunity, the privilege of hearing from Pastor Brett from uh, Central Church, Pastor Dave from church uh, up north, and Pastor Paul next week, and then I will be visiting and preaching at those churches as well. So this is, uh, it's a great opportunity to, uh, to be able to hear from those guys. I know you will be blessed. Be kind to them <laughs> as they come here. I know you will. Uh, so I won't see you for a few weeks here, and I will miss you. I just want you to know that. I'm serious. I will miss you. All right. Uh, if you have your Bibles, please stand as I read Mark chapter 8, starting at Verse 27. about him. This is God's word for us this morning. God. You may be seated. Join me in prayer. Not to us, O Lord, but to your name be glory because of your love and faithfulness. We trust in you, Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, our helper and indeed our shield. Give us, Lord, now ears to hear. Some, some hearing this need to be awakened to eternal things. Some have been deceived. Some of us this morning, Lord, need your word of comfort. And some of us here are, are far too comfortable. So give us, Lord, exactly what we need from your word And do this for the sake of your great name and for our good. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. On most days we get asked a lot of different questions. Questions like, how are you doing? What are you doing? Why are you doing what it seems like you're doing? And with the holiday this last week, some of those questions probably sounded like, how was your Thanksgiving? Did you have any leftovers? Did you eat already all of the leftovers? How much pumpkin pie is legal? Now, these are all sort of one level of questions, questions that you don't really have to think too long in order to answer, and your answer to those questions is not really going to change the course of your life all that much. But there is another level of questions that actually will. These questions take on greater seriousness. And so at some point in your life, you'll be asked questions like, where are you going to live? What are you going to do for job or career? Will you get married? Do you hope to marry? How many children do you hope to have? What are you going to spend your time doing with your life? Now, these questions are, much more important, I think you would agree. There's more at stake with these questions because how you answer those questions actually will really impact your life. So you don't want to answer those kinds of questions flippantly. You don't want to just blurt out an answer and maybe hope that it sticks. You actually want to take the time to consider, to weigh, to pray, to think about those questions so that you can actually make a good, wise decision moving forward. And then there is one foundational question that every human being has to face. And it's not that this is the only question that you will have to face and answer, but your answer to this one foundational question is crucial, it's vital, not just for your earthly life, but in fact for all eternity. If you get it wrong, in the end, Not much else is gonna matter, even if you get a lot of other things right. But if you get it right, then you're well on your way to getting life right. Now this one foundational question is not, am I really happy? Am I living my truth? Am I kind to others? Am I making a difference to people around me? Am I a good person? These are the sorts of questions our culture loves to ask. But the one foundational question that every human being has to answer is found here in verse 29 in our text in Mark chapter 8. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? Do you know that Jesus actually wants to know your answer? He actually wants to know what you say. He actually wants to know what you think about him. And so it's not enough, friends, to parrot what you've heard others say about him. Well, my parents, they talk a lot about Jesus. They, they say this about him. My teachers, well, they say other things about Jesus. My friend says a lot about Jesus, but he's mostly wrong on most things, so I'm not gonna really agree with him. I've listened to a lot of podcasts, I've read a lot of books, I read a blog. There's there's conflicting information about Jesus, so I'm not sure who to believe. Well, that's not what Jesus is asking of you this morning. He doesn't want the conservative Christian answer. He doesn't want the Christian private school answer. He doesn't want the homeschool answer. He doesn't want the answer you know your parents want you to give. He doesn't want the answer that is expected. He actually wants to know your answer. He wants to know what you say about him. Who do you say Jesus is? Now, you might wonder why this is such an important question. And honestly, being very candid, it's usually not all that important for us to, to be able to answer who someone is that lived 2,000 years ago, let alone 200 years ago. I mean, if I asked you who George Washington is or Abraham Lincoln or Thomas Jefferson, I'm pretty sure your history teachers would appreciate if you got the right answer. And maybe if you're playing trivia this Friday night, that'll help, be helpful there if you get that right answer. But your answer to that question, that's not going to change your life, and that's not going to change your eternity. If Jesus Christ is just another historical person, he lived, he died at a certain time and place, even if he was a really great person in your mind, well, even great people are forgotten eventually. Great people don't change eternity, but a great God will, and a great God can change your eternity. So if Jesus really is who we Christians claim that he is, then answering this simple question is way more important than just a good bit of trivia on a Friday night. Get this question right, and you're well on your way to getting life right. For eight chapters now, if you've been with us in our series in Mark, Mark has been telling us who he understands this Jesus to be. Remember from the very beginning, Mark chapter 1, verse 1. He didn't waste a lot of time. Mark says this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, Mark kind of had some insider information there. And so then what he gave us then and what we've seen over chapters 1 through 8 is a true account of all that Jesus said. Here's what Jesus did. So we've seen him teach and we've seen him preach. And we've seen him call people to repentance and faith, and we've seen him heal and perform many miracles and cast out demons and eat with the worst of sinners and calm the most tempestuous of storms. And our question this morning is not unlike the question that the disciples asked. This is back in Mark chapter 4, verse 41. Who then is this? I mean, who who is this guy that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, it's that very question that Jesus presses upon his disciples here in our text to wrestle with. Remember, Jesus knows what his disciples don't. We've seen that, haven't we, over the last couple of weeks, particularly here in Mark chapter 8. The disciples are not seeing things clearly. They're not getting it. So even though Jesus, they had witnessed Jesus feed 4,000 people with not much bread at all, Even though their conversation in the boat revolved around that said bread, they just weren't cluing in. Even though his disciples didn't understand that like last week, they are the blind man. They are the blind man from Bethsaida. They don't see everything clearly yet. Notice what Jesus does here. He doesn't leave them. He doesn't abandon them. He knows they're not getting it. Jesus doesn't politely excuse himself, walk away, and think, you know, where do I find smarter disciples? Maybe less high maintenance than these guys. Here's what he does, verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples. Just that phrase there, he went on. I don't know about you, but I am thankful that Jesus goes on with us. He keeps going on And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? So Jesus takes his disciples here about as far north as you can go from Jerusalem and still be in Israel. They are now way up north, and the way up north is the region of Caesarea Philippi. What's important about Caesarea Philippi is that it was a very wicked city. In fact, it was a boiling cauldron of idolatry, of paganism, of of some really gross hostility towards the Jews. So they are in enemy territory, in other words. There's no home field advantage here. Thoroughly pagan. And there, Jesus asks the disciple a question. But notice, it's not that foundational question just yet. First, Jesus asks a more general question. Who do people say that I am? Now, why would Jesus do that? Well, he's a master teacher, isn't he? We've seen that. And as a good, wise teacher will do, Jesus Jesus is attempting to draw his disciples out. He wants to get them to think, to to consider, to take seriously what he's asking. And so with this first question, Jesus is simply wanting to know, what's the word on the street? Who who do people out there say that I am? What's the word? What's the chatter? We would say, what's, what's the Twitter feed? Read verse 28. And they told him, Well, since you asked Jesus, John the Baptist, others say you're Elijah, others one of the prophets. Now, for as much as the disciples here are still only concerned about bread and meeting their own needs, and they fail to see everything clearly, they actually give appropriate answers here. They're not wrong and what the word on the street is concerning Jesus. There were basically three main ideas about him. Number one, well, he's a good teacher. He's in the line of John the Baptist. In fact, some thought, like Herod did, remember back in Mark chapter 6, some looked at Jesus and said, I think that might might be John the Baptist reincarnated. So he's a good teacher, number one. Number two, there were others, many others, who believed. They looked at Jesus and said, he must be Elijah. Elijah was one of the greatest prophets in all of Israel. Elijah performed miracles. We see Jesus performing miracles. Yeah, he, he must be Elijah. Number three, there were a whole bunch of people who weren't sure what to think about Jesus. They're kind of hedging their bets a little bit. And so they basically say, well, we're not sure, but I think we're pretty sure. We're going to come down solidly, definitely, definitely. Probably, mostly, I think there's a better than average shot that he's one of our prophets. That's our final answer. Maybe. I don't think he's Jeremiah. He might be Isaiah. I don't think he's Amos. He's definitely not Jonah. We think he's one of our prophets. Now, on the one hand, all of these three answers actually are pretty positive concerning Jesus. I mean, they put him in some pretty good company, don't they? I mean, the word on the street is not that Jesus is a quack. It's not that he's a wingnut or some some religious fanatic. No, people are saying he's a great teacher. He's a prominent prophet. He, He comes from a long line of preachers that God has used, that God has entrusted with his message. That's pretty favorable. But on the other hand, all of these answers are wrong. All of these popular opinions about Jesus, well, they just don't go deep enough. Because Jesus is not simply a good teacher. He's not simply a wise prophet. He's not simply a forerunner or a pointer, paving the way for the next guy. I mean, Jesus is the guy. And so if you look at Jesus this morning and you say, well, he's... He's he's a messenger. He's, He's kind of the trailblazer. He was pointing to someone else. He's the pointer and not the point. Well, you will have missed the point because Jesus is not just a great teacher. He is the teacher who taught that sinful men and women who have no hope, who deserve to die for their sins can actually be rescued by the same God that they have offended and sinned against. Jesus is not just a great prophet from a long time ago who promised that one day God would do something great. Jesus himself went on the cross. He suffered and died as the very son of God to bring about that salvation that the prophets had foretold for ages and ages. So if you look at Jesus this morning and you say, you know, I think he was a great man. He was the best human being that ever lived. He was a wise guy. He spoke the words of God. And you leave it right there well, then you really don't understand Jesus. And just like the disciples, you're not seeing everything clearly, at least not yet. So for these disciples, Jesus, in effect, took them on a a little field trip here, didn't he? He took them up way north to this very pagan, wicked area. And it's like Jesus looked around and said, okay, guys, every false god is here. Choose your own adventure. Choose your option. They're all here. You can dabble a little bit here. You can, I mean, everything's at play. People are saying all kinds of things about me. But I want to know what you say. What do you think about me? 21st century West is actually not unlike the first century East, is it? I and mean, we have all kinds of gods in operation today. We've got a smorgasbord. You can pick and choose whatever you want. You can dab a little bit. You can take a little bit here, a little bit here. You can create your own god. In fact, if we functionally, if we really believe we have gods of comfort, gods of status, gods of convenience, and if we press in a little bit more and we actually think, well, if, if self, the kingdom of self, is self is the authority, in other words, don't tell me what to think and do, Who are you to tell me what to think and do? Because I'm the captain of my own ship. If functionally that's how we live, then there's a whole lot of gods walking around here, aren't there? And yet Jesus still comes into our culture and our world this morning, and here we are surrounded by all kinds of gods. We can pick and choose. We can have a veritable smorgasbord, a buffet if we wanted, and Jesus still says, who do you say I am? What do you say about me. Brothers and sisters, you can get a lot of things right about Jesus and still not know him personally. You can have a really positive view of Jesus, yet completely misunderstand him and miss him completely. You can actually look at Jesus and applaud him for attributes and characteristics that you really admire, that you like, that that you would want in your own life, that you can still be blind to him, blind to his identity, blind to his mission, blind to his purpose, and end up, in fact, denying who he really is. So at some point, every one of us needs to face this one fundamental foundational question. Who do you say Jesus is? That's the question here in verse 29 that Jesus presses to his disciples. Who do you say I am? Now, it might be helpful for our understanding here to note that when Jesus asks this question, it's in the plural, so it's, so it's who do you all. He's not just speaking to one person. He's looking at all of his disciples here, saying who do all of you say? What do all of you say? I suppose if we were in Alabama, it'd be y'all. Who do y'all say I am? Now, Peter here speaks on behalf of all the disciples. He's the spokesperson. Now, just if you can, use a little bit of sanctified imagination. Can you imagine just being in this very spot? Jesus has just asked the disciples this foundational question, and he just waits. And again, this is, this is speculation on my part, so don't be sending me emails and saying, where's that in the Bible? I'm saying it's not in the Bible. But, but I think we can appreciate the magnitude. I think we can appreciate the tension of this moment. I mean, this would be, this would be one of those thin places in the Bible. Remember, those thin places are when time and eternity meet. When the divine and the human kind of collide. So there's all kinds of those. If, you're, if you have eyes to see, you read along in the Bible and think, whoa, I got to wait. I got to catch my breath here a little bit. Can you imagine being in that? That's a thin place. A thick place is probably, you know, being on the canoe with Jesus and the disciples are arguing about bread. They're just not getting it at all. But here we have one of those thin places I mean, Jesus has just asked his disciples this foundational question. There's no more important question that Jesus could ask of his disciples. And here, right in the middle of Mark's gospel and right in the middle here of this dramatic story, we then hear the voice of Peter speaking for the disciples. And he says, you are the Christ. You. Jesus are the Christ. It's an incredible statement. But what did Peter mean by that? Now, in in saying that Jesus is the Christ, he's saying, Jesus, you are the anointed one. It's from the Hebrew, it's the word for Messiah, the anointed one. Jesus, you are the anointed one. Now, in the Old Testament, Peter is a good Jewish boy, So he gets this. In the Old Testament, there were three groups of people who were anointed. There were prophets, there were priests, and there were kings. And each of them was anointed for a very specific task, a very specific purpose. Prophets were anointed for speaking, priests for serving and ministering, and kings for ruling. But what's interesting is that no one did all three in the Old Testament. So think of your favorite Old Testament character. Think of Moses or maybe David or Ezekiel or Elijah. These were great men of God, but they held one office. They did not hold all three. Nobody could possibly hold all three offices and do it with perfection and complete righteousness without ever sinning. Yet here's Peter saying, Jesus, you're different. You're the anointed one. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You hold all three your prophet, your priest, your king, and you do it perfectly. So, Peter's confession here is way more than simply, Jesus, we think you're a good guy. We think you're a miracle worker. Yeah, we took a poll here. We think you're a a wise prophet. No, Peter says, You are the Christ. For all of Peter's foibles and mistakes and sins and weaknesses, which Scripture documents, he got this right. And brothers and sisters, keep in mind here that nobody, no other human being ever said what Peter just said. This is the first time. I mean, Peter, no human being up to this point has professed what Peter just professed. No human being had ever got it right, except for Peter right here. Peter's going against the popular opinions of Jesus. He's going against a very wicked pagan culture. He's doing and saying what nobody has ever said before. He calls Jesus the Christ. So it's an incredible, astounding profession So much so that in Matthew's account, we read this in Matthew chapter 16, Matthew fills in a few more details for us, but Matthew then says that this confession, Peter's confession was brought about by God the Father, that flesh and blood could not bring it about. In other words, Peter didn't just come up with this on his own. No, this is divine. It was in fact the work of God. So Peter gets the right answer here about Jesus in Mark chapter 8. It's just not the complete answer. A few verses later, in Mark chapter 8 here, Peter discovers that the Messiah, his Messiah, must suffer and die on a cross for the sins of humanity. And that, in fact, shatters Peter's expectations, his expectations of Jesus as the Messiah. Now, we're going to Look at that passage. We'll get there, really, the 1st of January. But in this passage, Peter's expectations for who Jesus is, for what he thinks the Messiah will do, are completely shattered. And when his expectations are shattered, so goes his common sense. Because Peter rebukes Jesus. He says, Jesus, stop talking nonsense. Everybody knows Messiahs don't die. That's why they're Messiahs. They don't have to die. And Jesus then rebukes Peter. He calls Peter Satan. He tells him he's not thinking straight. Happy New Year. Can't wait to get there. I mean, it goes downhill fast for Peter, doesn't it? Peter sees, but he doesn't see clearly. Peter confesses the right answer It's just not the full answer. It's not the complete answer just yet. Peter knows that Jesus is the anointed Messiah. But he doesn't understand what this Messiah would actually do. Peter's confession, I think we would say at this point, was was an A. Maybe even A+. But his understanding of everything that that meant... For the Messiah, for Jesus, that was probably trending about at a C, maybe even C minus. So we're not surprised then by what Jesus tells his disciples not to do, verse 30. And he, Jesus, strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Jesus knows that his disciples are not quite getting it yet. They're not getting the full picture. So to start proclaiming and preaching partial truths about Jesus, well, that would not be helpful for his earthly ministry. In fact, that would be completely unhelpful. The disciples need more time. What they most need is another touch from Jesus, and then another one, and then another one, and then another one after that, and a few more after that. I mean, the disciples are a whole lot like us, aren't they? So here's Jesus coming to you this morning, and he says, I don't want the Christian answer. I don't want the answer that maybe you've been taught. It might be the right answer, but I don't want you just to parrot that. I don't want the answer that you're hearing or what's popular. I really want to know what you say. Who do you say Jesus is? And that's a question, friends, that you just can't wiggle your way out of. You can't strategize out of that. You can't ignore it, nor can you play it safe. It's not like there's a sort of a spiritual land of Switzerland that you can claim neutrality. If I can just live there, I don't have to confront it. No. Who do you say Jesus is? And just like or just as in the first century our 21st century gives us many different options and many different ways to answer that question, and the vast majority of them are completely unhelpful. This was uh, just a recent survey a couple years ago by Barna Research. The majority of Americans believe that Jesus, number one, was a real historical figure. We can work with that. Okay, they also believe, according to this research, that younger generations are far less likely to believe that Jesus was actually God. And so you might wonder, well, why do we we spend the time and the energy, and it takes both of those, time and energy, to teach some very young kids some very, very big important truths about God. Why do we really care about middle schoolers and high schoolers? Because the air that they breathe and the air that we breathe is blowing against them hard. I mean, is Jesus just another spiritual guru and another good guy? Or is he actually God? There's a big difference. As research continued, Americans are divided over whether Jesus was actually sinless and are conflicted over and it appears that there are just two options here Americans are conflicted over whether one's good deeds or Jesus is the way to get to heaven I guess you're supposed to choose your good deeds or Jesus choose Jesus like you don't have to be class valedictorian to make a wise decision there Jesus or Jeff I'm going to go with Jesus. Go with Jesus. Now, what all this means, brothers and sisters, is that there's a whole lot of confusion in our day about Jesus, about his identity, about his mission and his purpose, and actually what that actually means then for people like us. So when Jesus comes to you, and he does this morning, and he says to you, who do you say I am, and in brackets, I, I really want to know, that's what Jesus is saying, like I'm not joking, who do you say I am? I wouldn't just blurt something out. I wouldn't give him the answer that you think is going to make your parents happy or your friend or your pastor. You need to think seriously and then decide because everybody can't be Right? about Jesus somebody's wrong about him and I don't want you to be wrong about Jesus a few years ago Bono the lead singer of U2 was in an interview was asked about Jesus here's what he said it's a, it's, I'm going to read the whole quote because I want you to get the whole picture it's a, it'll be up on the screen you can follow along here's what Bono said he said look the secular response to the Christ story always goes like this He's a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy, had a lot to say along the lines of other great prophets, be they Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, Confucius. But actually, Christ doesn't allow that. He doesn't let you off the hook. Christ says, no, I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying I'm the Messiah. I'm saying I am God incarnate. And people say, no, no, please just be a prophet, a prophet we can take. But don't mention the M word, because you know we're going to have to crucify you. And he goes, no, no, I I know you're expecting me to come back with an army and set you free from these creeps, but I actually I am the Messiah. So what you're left with is either Christ, who was who he said he was, the Messiah, or a complete nutcase. I mean, we're talking nutcase on the level of Charles Manson. This man was strapping himself to a bomb and had king of the Jews on his head. And as they're putting him on the cross, was going, okay, martyrdom, here we go. Bring on the pain. The idea that the entire course of civilization for over half of the globe could have its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase for me, well, that's far-fetched. Go Bono. (laughs) Jesus Christ is no less controversial today, brothers and sisters, than he was in the first century. You start talking about Jesus the Christ at your office Christmas party this week or in the next few weeks even with the wonderful melodious Christmas carols in the background, well, you're liable to get canceled by those around you, even if it's just for the next few hours, the remainder of the night. I mean, the name Jesus Christ is either a swear word or it's a profound blessing. At the name of Jesus, you you either shake your fist in rebellion or you bow your head in submission. But you can't just say the name Jesus and have it not mean anything. We don't have that option. He hasn't given us that option. So who do you say Jesus is? You get that wrong. And in the end, not much else is really going to matter. But you get it right. And you are well on your way to getting life right. So maybe you're here this morning and you're taking this in and you say, well, I think I need more time. I'm not sure totally fair. Thanks for your honesty. So do it then. Take the time to look into Jesus. Search the scriptures. If, if you've had enough of Mark or you want a little bit of change, I would encourage you to, to start reading the gospel of John then. Because you'll see, again, Jesus on the move. You'll see Jesus interact with people. You'll see how Jesus treats enemies. You'll see how Jesus treats strangers. You'll see The kind of character on display, just as we're seeing here in Mark. Search the scriptures. Wrestle with what he said. Don't give up so easily. Weigh the evidence. Look at the facts. We have a a wealth of good books that will help you to answer this foundational question as well. It's not for lack of resources. And by the way, you're going to be in some very great company if you actually do that. Some of the most brilliant minds that have ever lived have done exactly that. I got to figure out who Jesus is. I'm going to take the time. Some of them took years to figure that out, so that they could answer those, this foundational question. One very helpful resource, just this is fairly recent, last couple of years, is, is Tim Keller's "The Reason for God." Some of you have read that. Remember reading that a few years ago. One of, the, one of the takeaways for me in that was Keller, Keller says to doubt your doubts, which I thought was really helpful. Doubt your doubts. In other words, give your objections to Jesus or the gospel or Christianity the same level of scrutiny that uh, you would give the claims of Jesus himself. In other words, weigh the evidence, but do it with humility. Uh, humility that says, okay, I can actually trust what's in this word because this word of God hasn't changed, it's never going to change, it's been picked apart, it's been chewed, it's been spit out and it, it remains the same for thousands of years. So I can put confidence in what I read here but humility says I need to be suspicious of what I'm thinking, I need to be suspicious, way more suspicious than I am about my own thoughts and feelings and then you decide. But you do have to decide you have to honestly answer the question. Who do you say Jesus is? Now many of us here, maybe the vast majority of us here, have answered that question. Like Peter, at a certain point in time you said, "Jesus, you are you are the Christ." That's my confession. You are the Messiah. You're my Messiah. Praise God. Nobody comes to that point apart from the grace of God bringing them to that point. So God has been exceedingly good and gracious. But don't forget, brothers and sisters, that that confession, just like Peter, your confession of Christ, that's just the beginning. That's not the end of following Jesus. That's not the end of your Christian life or of, What we think about here is the road of discipleship. That's actually just the beginning. Isn't it interesting here that that Jesus asked this fundamental, foundational question right in the middle of Mark? It's not Mark 1. It's not at the end in Mark 15. Can you imagine what would have happened if Jesus bounded on the scene in Mark chapter 1 and comes out with that question? You know how many wrong answers he would have got? Blank stares. Really, really confused looks. Nothing. But he asked this, well, halfway through. In other words, Jesus knew that his disciples had so much more to learn. So much more to understand. Jesus knew his disciples needed to undergo testing. They needed to undergo trials. They needed to undergo suffering. They needed to see with their own eyes who Jesus was the miracles that he performed, how the kingdom of God was now upon them in Jesus and how the, he was bringing to bear God's gracious rule and reign. The disciples needed to see that. That's why Jesus didn't ask him this in, Mark chapter, or in, in chapter one. But here we are in Mark chapter eight, right in the middle, following Jesus. It's not at the beginning, it's not at the end. Brothers and sisters, your confession that Jesus is the Christ, praise God for that, But know that that's just the beginning of following Jesus. It's not the end. Like the disciples, you and I have so much more to learn. We have so much more to understand. You and I will need to go through times of testing and trials and and the the suffering and, and being refined by that. And we need to come out on the other side. We're going to have to have Jesus slowly and patiently remove the scales from our eyes so that we can see Clearly. So think about what it means for you when you say, like Peter, you are the Christ. What does that actually mean? When you say, yes, Jesus, you are the Christ. Is it possible that your confession like Peter, it gets you an A, but in functional everyday life, probably more like a C-minus. Is it possible that your true confession involves a lot of intellectual knowledge? That's what's driving that, but it really hasn't reached any deeper than that. Your confession, yes, you are the Christ, really hasn't worked its way down into your heart that it has impacted and changed your life in any dramatic way. So brothers and sisters, think about what it means when you say, yes, Lord, you are the Christ. Because if you say that, and when you say that, what you are confessing then is, Jesus, you are prophet, you are priest, you are my king, you are all three. And so brothers and sisters, if that is indeed true, then how can you not live differently this week? How can I not live differently this week why would you want to still hold a grudge against someone and withhold forgiveness Christ your high priest died on the cross to forgive you of your sins how can you not live differently if you really confess like Peter Jesus you are the Christ faith in this Jesus Faith in Christ, brothers and sisters, means more than just agreeing, checking a few boxes on the theological exam. Faith in Christ means making a judgment about Jesus. You have weighed, you have considered, you have thought, you have prayed, you have asked, but then you actually do decide. You have made a decision, and then you begin to live your whole life as if that is true regardless of the cultural winds that are blowing in your face, regardless of who agrees or disagrees, faith in Christ means that you make a decision about Jesus, you count the cost, and you say, you know what? You're worth it. Jesus, you are worth it, even if it costs me dearly, because it might. Faith in this Christ, that confession, means that you live This week, like your foundational confession, really does matter because it really does matter. And I can't decide that for you. You can't decide that for me. You can't decide that for your loved ones, for your kids. But every one of us, every human being has to face that question and has to answer it. Who do you say Jesus is?